0: Time. 15. Thank you very much. First, a disclaimer. Because I have the title Astronomer Royal, I've been asked do you do the Queen's horoscopes? I respond that she's never asked me. And indeed, I'm not an astrologer. And indeed, I'm a scientist. And scientists are rather rotten forecasters. Not as bad as economists, though. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm. But some important things can be predicted a few decades ahead. Two things in particular. The world's getting warmer. It's getting more crowded. Climate change has been much discussed, I'll say nothing about it. Population rise has been rather under-discussed. Fifty years ago, world population was about 3.5 billion. It's now 7.6 billion. Forecasts made in the 1960s of mass starvation proved off the mark because food productions kept pace with population. There are famines, but they're due to conflict, or maldistribution, not scarcity overall. And world population is expected to rise to 9 billion by mid-century. And in Africa, if the population growth doesn't stop, it'll double again by 2100. Africa will then have 4 billion people. Nigeria, a population of 900 million, the same as Europe and North America combined. To feed so many will, require improved agriculture. And maybe some dietary innovations, eating less beef, converting insects, highly nutritious and rich in protein, into palatable food, and making artificial meat. To quote Gandhi, there'll be enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. My book's theme is this. Our Earth's existed for 45 million centuries. But this one is special. It's the first century where one species, ours, has such a heavy collective footprint that it has our planet's future in its hands. We're deep in the Anthropocene. What does this mean for all the other species? Biodiversity is crucial to human well-being. But for many environmentalists, of course, preserving the richness and beauty of our biosphere has value in its own right. Over and above what it means to us as humans. And it's in jeopardy. Already there's more biomass in chickens and turkeys than in all the world's wild birds. And the biomass in humans, cows and domestic animals is 20 times that in wild mammals. And to quote the great ecologist E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is the sin that future generations will least forgive us for. We'll be destroying the book of life before we've read it. That's a real threat. Providing food and sustainable energy for an expanding and more demanding population, these are goals that offer inspirational challenges for young scientists and engineers. That's the positive bit. And incidentally, when I talk about science, I include engineering and technology. Indeed, the latter are more challenging. There may be some engineers here. If they are, then like my engineering friends, they're like a cartoon, which shows two beavers looking up at a big hydroelectric dam. One says to the other, I didn't actually build it, but it's based on my idea. Armchair theorists like me should be very modest compared to those who build things that work and meet public demand. But to survive the century, we need wisely directed innovation. And many of us are anxious that some technologies, especially bio, cyber and robotics, are advancing so unpredictably that we may not properly cope with them. For instance, New techniques for gene editing are hugely promising, but ethical concerns are raised already by, for instance, the Chinese experiments on human embryos. And experiments on the flu virus have been done, which show you can make it more virulent and more transmissible. That's obviously dangerous. And so-called gene drive programs can be deployed to wipe out species Fine if it's the mosquitoes that carry the Zika virus. Not so good if it's, say, grey squirrels, perhaps, or if we disturb natural ecologies and have unintended consequences. Well, all these technologies are going to need regulation. The goal has to be to accelerate the benefits and minimize the risks. But unlike making a nuclear bomb, These techniques, bio and cyber, need apparatus that's small and widely available. So I worry that whatever regulations are imposed can't be enforced worldwide any more than the drug laws can or the tax laws. Whatever can be done will be done by someone somewhere. And we know all too well that technical expertise doesn't guarantee balanced rationality. The global village will have its village idiots, and they'll have global range. And the rising empowerment of tech-savvy groups, or even individuals empowered by bio and cyber technology will pose an intractable challenge to governments. And it will aggravate the tension between freedom, privacy, and security. What about cyber techniques computers? Something especially exciting is what's called generalized machine learning. Last year, the London-based company DeepMind had a computer called AlphaGo Zero, which achieved World Championship standard in chess and in the Chinese game of Go in just a few hours, just being given the rules. It played against itself, but it's so fast it could play several games per second. And this advantage of speed, of course, allows computers to do other things: to identify dogs, cats, and human faces by crunching through millions of images. Not the way babies learn, and they learn to translate by reading millions of pages of, for example, multilingual EU documents. Their boredom threshold's infinite, <laughs> but advances are patchy. Robots are still clumsier than a child in moving pieces on a real chessboard or in tying shoelaces. But sensor technology, speech recognition and so forth are advancing apace. Well, AI won't just take over manual work. Indeed, plumbing and gardening will be very hard to automate, but it'll take over routine legal work, medical diagnostics and even surgery. And I suggest in my book that we need massive redistribution of wealth From the robot owners to create huge numbers of secure and respected jobs where the human element is crucial. Above all, carers for the old, the young and the ill. Jobs far more satisfying than working in a call center or an Amazon warehouse. So this is win-win. But let's speculate further ahead. The great physicist Freeman Dyson conjectured a time when kids will be able to design and create new organisms just as his generation played with chemistry sets. If it becomes possible to, as it were, play God on a kitchen table, our ecology, even our species, may not long survive unscathed. And, looking ahead, human beings themselves, their mentality and their physique, may become malleable via genetic redesign and cyborg techniques. And this is a real game-changer. When we admire the literature and artefacts that have survived from antiquity, we feel an affinity across a time gap of thousands of years with those ancient artists and the sages. But we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences in centuries to come will have any emotional resonance with us even though they may have some algorithmic understanding of how we behaved. If robots could observe and interpret their environment as adeptly as we do, they'd be perceived as intelligent beings to which we can relate. And if so, would we have obligations towards them? Should we feel guilty if our robots are underemployed or bored? And what if a machine developed a mind of its own? Would it stay docile? Or would it go rogue? If it could infiltrate the Internet and the Internet of Things, it could manipulate the rest of the world. It may have goals utterly impassive to human wishes or even treat humans as an encumbrance. Well, some AI pundits take such scenarios seriously, but there are others who think these concerns are premature and worry less about artificial intelligence than about real stupidity. But the futurologist, Ray Kurzweil, wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, where he predicted that humans would transcend biology by merging with computers. In old-style spiritualist parlance, they would go over to the other side. But Kurzweil's worried that this nirvana may not happen in his lifetime. So he wants his body frozen until it's reached. And there's a company in Arizona that will freeze and store your body so that when immortality is on offer you can be resurrected and your brain downloaded. Well I was surprised to find that three academics in England had gone in for cryonics. Two have paid the full whack and the third took the cut price option of just having his head frozen. (laughs) I was glad they were from Oxford, not from my university. (laughs) And I told them I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than an American refrigerator. <laughs> but it's beyond our Earth, in deep space, that cyborg and AI technologies have the most spectacular scope. And indeed, as robots and miniaturization get better, there'd be less case for sending people into space. Indeed, for that reason, if I was a taxpayer in America, I wouldn't pay for the man program. I'd leave it to private companies like LMS, SpaceX. They can run a cut-price programme far riskier than Western nations can impose on publicly supported civilians. But we should cheer these pioneers on. By 2100, thrill-seekers in the mould of, say, Savannah finds may have established bases independent from the Earth. And Elon Musk himself says he wants to die on Mars but not on impact. And he's, I think, 47 years old, so he might make it. But don't ever expect mass emigration from the Earth. On this, I strongly disagree with Musk. It's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from the Earth's problems. we have got to solve them here. Coping with climate change is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic. There's no planet B for ordinary Risk averse people, so we must cherish our earthly home. Just to finish with a few comments on the scientific endeavor itself, crucial to understanding the world and, of course, to changing it. What have we learned? What might we learn? And what might we never learn? We've learned that all cosmic processes are interconnected. We've learned we're made of atoms that were forged in stars. We've learnt that to understand ourselves we must understand those atoms and the complexity with which they combine into DNA, proteins and cells. But the challenges of physics and cosmology aren't the most daunting ones. In fact, it's odd that some of the best understood phenomena are far away in the cosmos. I can speak with great confidence about two black holes colliding a billion light years away. In contrast, you're very foolish if you take seriously what anyone tells you about diet or childcare. Two things that everyone cares about. But it actually isn't paradoxical that we've understood some arcane cosmic phenomena while being flummoxed by everyday things. It's because astronomy deals with phenomena which are far less complex than the biological and human sciences. The smallest insect is more complicated than anything in the larger cosmos. Finally, let me focus back to the here and now. Though just digressing, I should say it's worthwhile to tackle the grandest questions in science. What describes the bedrock of physical reality? What breathes far into its equations? How might our vast and complex universe have evolved from something microscopically small? a mind-blowing cosmic extension of Charles Darwin's realization that all life evolved from a simple beginning. But let me focus back to the here and now. How do we survive the challenges of this crucial century? The main theme of my book. We're in denial about some newly emergent threats which could be globally devastating. And a wise mantra is that the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. Spaceship Earth is hurtling through the void. Its passengers are anxious and fractious. Their life support system is vulnerable to disruption and breakdowns. But politicians won't prioritize the global and long-term measures needed unless enough voters endorse such policies. So scientists must enhance their leverage by going public, as it were, and by enlisting charismatic individuals and the media to amplify their voice. Let me give you two recent instances. The papal encyclical in 2015 had a worldwide influence in the lead-ups of the Paris Climate Conference. There's no gain saying that he's got a billion followers and he's got global reach, long-term vision and concern for the world's poor. And more parochially, in this country, I doubt that Michael Gove would have become exercised about non-gradable waste had it not been for the BBC's Blue Planet programme fronted by our secular pope, David Attenborough, especially the images of albatrosses returning to their nests and regurgitating plastic debris. That's an iconic image, like the uh, polar bear on the melting ice flow. And it's encouraging to witness more activists among the young. It's unsurprising, as they can hope to live to the end of a century. And their campaigning is welcome. Their commitment gives grounds to hope. But finally, we need to think globally. We need to think rationally. We need to think long term. Empowered by 21st century technology, but guided by values that science alone can't provide. And to quote the great scientist Peter Medawar, the fate of human beings is like the bells on alpine cattle. They're attached to our own neck, and it must be our fault if they don't make a tuneful and melodious sound. Thank you very much.